on episode 17 of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking about machine learning and automation and underwriting with Lance Poole from Juniper Labs. The InsureTech Geek podcast powered by JB Knowledge is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Another week, another show. So excited to be back with you talking about all things insurance tech on the Insure Tech Geek Podcast. I'm your host, James Benham, and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host and author and very interesting man, Rob Galbraith. Rob, how's it going, buddy? Good, James. How you doing, man? Doing great. I'm in your home state of Michigan. You are, yeah. <laughs> I can feel Yeah, you know, those Michiganders are making us Texans look very reasonable with all the protests and oh. um, all that. So Man, oh man, when you've got armed protesters in the state capitol, you've got a little political problem on your hands. Uh they've uh she, she she's she's got a challenging time up here in Michigan and it's it's different. I, I tell you the grocery stores are, are are way thinner on the shelves here. A lot more stores are closed. It's a it's a strange thing to leave uh, Texas where all the all the uh, grocery stores are full and the shelves are fine and there's no food panic and you come up here and it's like there's a lot of stuff people don't have and so it was, it was uh, interesting we came up to check on on our place here and uh, of course I love I love it up here but it's cold it, it look it started out at 33 degrees today with huge winds off the lake and it's going to be a high of 39 in the middle of May Rob and that's on a that's on a week when it's like in the 90s in Texas. Crazy, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's it's summer started early down here for sure, as you know. And um, yeah, I'm worried it's going to be pretty brutal because normally it rains quite a bit in April, May, and then it, the taps just you know turn off and we, we don't get rain uh, for three months in the summer. But uh, we haven't got that much so far in Texas, so definitely hot. But hey, after a long winter, long uh, start to 2020, I'm happy to have summer start early. Understood. Understood. And joining us from beautiful Denver, Colorado, Mr. Lance Poole. Lance, how are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks, James and Rob, for having me on. Yeah, super glad to have you on. Excited to have you. Even if you are an Alabama graduate, we are still excited to have you on. I just want to point out that I I, uh, I will interview uh, any graduate of any school, uh, including Alabama, on this podcast uh, it's okay. Rob will will interview anyone from Michigan, Michigan State, Notre Dame. It doesn't matter where you went to school. We want you on this show. You now you are a local yokel Tuscaloosan, so you were born and raised there. Kind of like I was born and raised in Baton Rouge. I did not go to LSU. You did go to your local college. You went to the you know the the national what was under Saban five time national champion. Uh, you have like five coaches that have won national titles or something crazy like that. I mean, how many national titles y'all up to now? 20 something? 17. 17. Only 17. <laughs> it's like you just can't stop winning. I do a talk called Building a Mad Scientist about how to build innovation labs at companies. And I have a, sl- a slide about building process. Like you have to have a process to be successful. And I have a picture of Nick Saban on that slide because how does one coach? have that much turnover, right? Like all the assistants get cherry picked every three years, right? And all of his players leave every three to four years. And he just keeps winning national titles. He doesn't have rebuilding years, right, Lance? It's insane. It is. It's an amazing thing. And there's, you know, throughout Alabama, there are a lot of business people who study Nick Saban's speeches, his way he coaches, all these things. It probably doesn't happen with a lot of other states where, Folks are obsessed with how a football coach operates, but it's it's produced good results in Alabama. But you should be obsessed with the way he operates because it's that level of sustained performance seems impossible. I was I was tailgating in Tuscaloosa a few years ago, and I was hanging out with the strength and conditioning coach for for the the Crimson Tide, and uh, he was telling me that everybody keeps cots in their offices because he, they have to. He's like, we just sleep there. Saban never quits. They say it takes 24 hours off after a national title, and then he starts recruiting again. 24 hours. That's all he gives himself after winning 
the big show. I was like, yeah. man, I take like a week after a good year. I'm like, I'm going to take a week off. He takes a day, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, one, no one's going to be writing case studies on appropriate work-life balance by looking at <laughs> no. Alabama's should, football program. You should not look at work-life balance there. <laughs> Terry Saban, I don't know if she'll have something to say about that or not, but I'll tell you what, it's, it is, uh, it is fascinating. So let's just dive uh, right in. Uh, you know, my, one of my favorite movies, Office Space. I'm going to jump to conclusions, Matt. Let's just dive right in on this whole thing. Um, you're from you're from Alabama. You're born and raised in Tuscaloosa. You went to University of Alabama. What did you study there? Like, what did you envisioning going into as a career? And then, how did you land in InsureTech? Not many people get into insurance on purpose. Maybe I'm I'm the rare exception. <laughs> so I studied uh, finance as my undergrad and then statistics for graduate school. Um, again, not a, not a really popular path. I had a statistics professor while I was in undergrad that was just inspirational, loved his class, made it a lot of fun. And I thought, okay, I want to be like this guy. I want to be a statistics professor. I really geeked out on statistics like that. Again, thankfully, this is the Intratech Geek podcast, so I can really geek out on some of these things. And uh, I got a couple years into um, a graduate slash PhD program and decided I don't want to do research for my entire career. The idea of being a professor was more exciting than the actual work of it. So that's one thing you find out when you're in school, like what it's like to actually do the jobs. So I was, you know, after I'd read my 30th research paper, I felt like I don't want to be writing these for my career. (laughs) And at the time, I had someone else in my program that was studying for an actuarial exam. And I looked at it and I was like, hey, this is pretty easy stuff. Like, I think I can pass this exam. This isn't too bad. And so I took an actuarial exam and that was kind of the first step uh, in a life full of glamour and fame as an actuary. (laughs) (laughs) It is Um, very, it's very, I mean, there's, there's uh, paparazzi. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to deal with. Dinners, receptions, constant award shows, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I, I uh, so I got interested in actuarial science, uh, thought, okay, this is, this is a path where I think I could be successful. It's got a lot of uh, math that's involved, but also there's this business aspect and you're you know, sort of the engineer for the insurance company. Um, I actually started out my undergraduate um, school as, as an, uh, studying engineering. And so that was a path I wanted to pursue. So I've kind of had a little bit of that mindset, but now I'm, I'm doing this for, for an insurance company and and that's that's how I ended up um, getting into the world of actuarial science. It's interesting, you know. Um, I, I've thought about this because I've gone to hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand, conferences since I started JB Knowledge nineteen years ago. I don't, I don't know how many I've spoken at over four hundred, but I've attended maybe close to a thousand. And it's interesting because there's a lot of conferences and a lot of industries I've been to where people say the exact same thing. I, you know, no one goes into college to become this whatever that is, uh, you know, one that I really believed was com- a compliance conference. I went to a compliance conference and for sure, I know that there's no 17 year old out there saying, dad, I want to be a compliance officer one day, right? Like that's, I know that, <laughs> um, you know, there, there are some 16 and 17 year old math geeks. And I say that affectionately because I'm a geek, right? I'm a hardcore geek. Uh, I'm a computer science geek. Uh, I'm an accounting geek. I, I love numbers. I know there are people that say, I, w- I want to be a ma- mathematician. I want to be an actual. You know, so th- I know that happens. But you, you look at the, the, the professions kids want to be. They want to be, uh, you know, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pi- police officer, a firefighter, a pilot, an astronaut, you know, those kind of things. Um, but there's, you know, most professions kids don't dream of, right? You, you end up and you find your passion later. Where This is interesting because you, you found a passion for mathematics and numbers and you found probably one of the best homes in the planet for mathematicians <laughs> in, in insurance. What was it like when you really started digging into the work? So I started out in, I'm a life actuary by training. So, you know, you can, there's different kinds of actuaries and you can focus on life or property and casualty. I was working for a life insurance company and I started out in probably what's one of the most least glamorous actuarial jobs you can have. And that was working in the reserving department for the company. So they calculate the reserves, how much money does an insurance company have to hold? There's a lot of requirements there. 
Um, and so I was in that role for a couple of years and I found the work to be somewhat boring and repetitive and not all that interesting. I mean, there's some people that thrive in that and they love it. I was always more business oriented. You know, I wanted to understand, like I remember an early conversation asking one of my coworkers about the product we're working on, because a lot of times you just refer to these products by, you know, some four letter code. And I said, what is this product? Like, what's it do? And the response I got back was just a blank stare. Like, why does that matter <laughs> in terms of the work I'm doing here? Why do I need to know what this product does? And I, and I was like, well, I'm just kind of curious, like who buys this product? Who's it for? You know, how's it work? A lot of those kinds of things. And so that was kind of a wake up call to me that maybe I'm not in the right role. I'm interested in you know, what it's like to be an actuary, but there's other kinds of things I could do. And at that point, I switched companies, started working for a different company where I was there for almost 10 years and ended up in the product area, which I think was just a great fit because when you're a product actuary, you're working, um, you're building new products, you're helping tweak the products. And at the end of the day, that's why the insurance company existed. It exists to sell product, to, you know, to insure risk. Uh, and so being in the product area was was a really good fit for me and my personality. That makes sense. Rob? Yeah, Lance. So <clears throat> I've known you in your current role as CEO of Juniper Labs. And um, you were one of the first people that I met that had come from the insurance industry and then kind of made the leap over to the insure tech side of things. Previously, a lot of it had been you know, investors, entrepreneurs, you know, folks like James that really kind of started from the outside, right? And kind of selling into the industry, you know, saw an opportunity to make it better. I didn't see a lot of insurance insiders as I would turn it, kind of flip it over to the, the startup world. So just tell me about that transition. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. And I've seen, by the way, more and more people doing this over the last couple of years. Uh, but yeah, tell me a little bit about your journey of uh, how you ended up in the startup world. So when I left the uh, the insurance world, I, I was VP of product at a life insurance company called Protective Life, was on the C-suite track, was sort of the de facto innovation person at my company. So I'll say this, I felt like I had the best job that I could possibly have in the company um, and still felt like okay, this isn't what I should be doing. You know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about actuarial science. I'm not currently working as an actuary. I'm the CEO of a, of a InsurTech startup. And I, I guess my chief role now is like the head salesperson for our company. So I'm not sure that tells you about our company that an actuary is the person in charge of sales and no. product and those things. But the chief executive should be the chief spokesperson, I believe. After, <laughs> you should be. You after, should two, be. after two decades of doing this, I can tell you that that is your main job anyway, no matter what. That's right. Say. That's right. So for me, it was recognizing that you know, I wasn't in a role that I feel like fit well and so what are my options? Um, at the time, and this has been six years ago, startups were becoming to be more of a thing that would be talked about as like, this is a path. Uh, and my story is different than a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs you hear, one of my favorite podcasts outside of this one is uh, How I Built This. And if you listen to How I Built This, I feel like those stories are so often, I was a 12-year-old and I had this first business or I was a 10-year-old and I had this business. And both of my parents had, uh, my mom was a teacher. My dad had a blue collar job. So I didn't grow up with, with this model of, of an entrepreneurial path in mind, which I think is why I went the corporate route pretty early because I felt like this is what it looks like to work. And then as I had some corporate success and had some friends that had, had done startups, I thought, okay, this could be a really interesting path. And let me see if I want to pursue this. Um, so I'd say, you know, one point of the transition is, is recognizing that I wasn't in the right role and I should do something else. Um, the other part of my story that that's that I think is important is, and I recognize there's privilege in this too. You know, actuaries do pretty well, get paid well, so I was a, I was able to build up a bit of a cushion too. Um, I didn't leave with with no cushion. You know, I had six to twelve months where I could say I'm going to try and make this work. And then on top of that, as an actuary, there's almost zero unemployment. So I I felt like stepping away. Worst case, I can come back and get a job for an insurance companies. And maybe I'm more employable having had some true startup experience. So I'd say point two would be you have a plan B. Most startups are going to fail uh, if you have to come back and end up working in the corporate world by choice or because your startup failed and know what it is you're going you're gonna to come back to. And then another thing I would say as well, and this maybe this is, I'm not sure if this is controversial, but I think you should you should leave knowing that you make more money in the corporate world. So I, I'm 
big believer that on an expected value basis. So we, you know, we talk a lot about what expected value is on average, like what are you going to earn? I think on average, you do better just working your way up the corporate ladder. Um, you know, I'm, I'm six years in and, and my bank account can, can, can prove that for sure, not having had an exit. Um, but it's not all about the money. Um, so, you know, doing, doing what you, what you feel like you're called to do is more important than, than for me, you know, maximizing my, my earnings. You know, Lance, uh, I kind of took the, uh, different approach. Uh, I took kind of the Hernan Cortez approach when he landed in Mexico he ordered all of his ships burned so right. his troops couldn't go back. And when I started JV Knowledge, I had I had some offers from really large accounting firms. I'd interned with one of them. I'm not going to say they're other great firm, but I, I, I'll, I'll I'll leave the name out. And they called me to find out if I was taking their full-time offer. And I said, I'm going to start my, my business. And they're like, are you sure? 9-11 just happened. This is 01. Are you sure? 9-11 just happened. There's no jobs anymore. Like there's a lot of people who want this job. And I, I said, uh, you know, I'm going to Cortez this so I can't go back. And I said, then you won't have a problem filling it. And that was it. You know, that, that kind of ended the conversation. And uh, I definitely burned all the boats on the <laughs> I not look. I, I uh, 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 really wanted to be fully all in. Um, I would not do that again <laughs> just because it's good in business to have relationships that you maintain. And I was young, right. I was young and brash and 21 and thought I had the world all figured out, but, uh, it's interesting. Um, I'd love to talk about what exactly you'd say you do here, um, uh, to quote the office space again. Um, tell me, tell me like you have some products, one, which I thought was super cool because you worked Sudoku into a product name, Tell me what the products do. So the best way to think about Juniper Labs is we help answer the questions an underwriter would want to answer. Um, so we're focused on commercial insurance. We're, you know, we're an intratech building technology for insurance companies. Um, and the questions a uh, commercial insurance underwriter would want, to, would want to answer questions like, who are you? What's your business name? What's your address? All the things about your business. So question one, who are you? Question two, what do you do? Like, what does this business do? In commercial insurance, you know, there's very different rates from a florist to someone who is doing roofing, right? So what the business actually does is really important. Third question would be, how much of it do you do? Um, so you know, what's the payroll? How many locations are there? Things like that. And then the fourth question, has anything changed? Because businesses change dynamically um, all the time. You know, The moment we're living through right now shows that businesses change. Uh, so those are the four questions. We're building technology that, that help answer those questions. And the data Sudoku, as you refer to it, is just taking some of this technology we have and filling in data gaps that may exist. Uh, this particular problem, it's a problem for carriers, but also for, for you think about brokers when they are capturing information from the application. They're just trying to get maybe the minimum amount of data they need to get the app across. And there could be a bunch of data gaps there in terms of what the business does. What's the business's website? You know, anything else that could be pertinent and there's probably things they wish they would have captured uh, when it comes time for renewal that they don't have. So that's, an, that's something that we've been working on, this, this product called Data Sudoku. Awesome. Rob? Yeah, Lance. Uh, so, yeah, as a, as a former underwriter, I can totally appreciate that. And, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a need for that. There, there's no doubt about it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things, as we've talked about Juniper Labs, that's always struck me is... Um, you know, obviously you have a vision for your company and your business in terms of a strategic vision, if not a, a roadmap, I imagine as well, of, you know, how you're going to get there. But, you know, what you want your company to, to be when you grow up, right, if you think about it that way. Yet at the same time, one of the things that's always impressed me is your ability to, uh, to flex, right, and to kind of say, hey, as we talk to carriers and, and let them know about um, opportunities that we see and, and things that we could do. But, you know, we're also uh, flexible in terms of, hey, they need a little bit of this, a little so how do you uh, manage, I guess I would say that that strategic vision with kind of the being opportunistic and just going where the, you know, those conversations that you have with carriers take? Yeah, it's a good question. So we have a big vision of being able to make commercial insurance cheaper and more transparent. So you're completely right, Rob, that 
it's important to have vision. Um, we want to transform the experiences, all these things we want to do, as you say, when we grow up because you know, we're early stage startup. But I think the thing that's important for us is we're not wed on how we get there. I think in the early days as a startup founder, it's important to listen to problems, to always have your ears open for problems. So when you're talking to a carrier, you may start the conversation with, you know, focused on a particular solution that you have. But my ears perk up when I hear of a problem that a carrier has. Um, so that's one thing is kind of always be listening. The other thing is, is if you're not working on something that's a top five problem for an organization, I think you should just move on because it's a fool's errand to try and force the organization uh, to try and look at a solution that's not, you know, what I would call one of the burning problems that, that they have. And the other thing we'll do too that I think is pretty scrappy is just replicate success. So if we talk to a carrier, hear of a challenge, you know, work on something, then a lot of what I'm doing is asking around to see if other people have, you know, a similar problem or experiencing similar pain. So you have to have a lot of relationships. If you just know a couple of people, it's hard to do that. Um, but if you have a wide network of 20, 30 people, it's easy to pick up the phone and call someone um, and, you know, you don't have to divulge confidential information, but just in general terms, you know, say, you know, I, I'm hearing of someone else is having this issue. Is that something you guys are experiencing too? Is that a problem? And you can either get a, yes, this is a problem or no, it's not something we're really focused on right now. Gotcha. Let's dive a little deeper. Let's talk about machine learning. Just, just there's people who say the word machine learning and don't understand what it means a lot. <laughs> Now, I, I started writing software when I was 11. I got my first computer from my dad. And at middle school, they started me in computer science classes. And I started on like a Gateway 2000 at the house. And I had a, oh, geez, at the uh, at school, I think we had some old TRS-80s. And then we had some, uh, you know, 386s. They're pretty old machines. But we were able to build expert systems back then, not a GW Basic, Q Basic. You know, we we, we built a whole bunch of conditional statements. You know, if this, then that, right? And I think a lot of people confuse an expert system for a machine learning algorithm, right? They, they say, oh, this is artificial intelligence because I did some things and it, you know, deterministically figured out that I had one. And the reality is behind the scenes, it's like a giant if-then statement. So walk people through your definition of machine learning and how you're applying it here. Yeah, so our definition of machine learning, the way I think about machine learning is, you know, maybe we can go pretty literal with the, the word, the word um, is just that we have some system that is, that is able to take in data and then improve the experience, improve the learning without being explicitly programmed. There's no if-then statement as you referred to in your example, uh, James. So just to give an example of one of the things we're working on, you know, I mentioned these questions that an underwriter would want to answer. One of those questions is, what does your business do? So we have an API that can classify businesses. And if you're not as familiar with commercial insurance, large driver of the rate that a business pays on insurance is the class code. Um, so it's a code that groups similar risks together. So we can take just a short description of text, a website, and then return back a four-digit class code as to what this business is. And the way that model was created is we took millions and millions of records and we didn't have to program, you know, if then statements, but we could take millions and millions of records and train a model to get good at being able to predict what the classification code is, you know, based on just a short description or a website or some input text. Awesome. And I've seen some pretty interesting examples of how people in insure tech are using machine learning. Can you just give me like, just the really, and you said we're only working on top five problems, which I agree with, right? There's a lot of solutions in search of a problem out there in, in sure tech and in all tech. Um, you're, you're trying to solve real world problems they have right now so that they can make more money and be more profitable, more productive. Um, certainly in, in Rob's book, one of the top seven you know, problems facing the insurance industry is that insurance is too expensive, right? Like in, just mm -hmm. in general. And he talked about how, how we can tackle that. So just walk me through what's the, the biggest problem that you've been able to knock out or begin to knock out with machine learning. So for us, the small business segment, we see it as challenging for carriers because there's not a lot of premium there. So if you run 
a, you know, a shop that has four people in it, you know, your workers' compensation premium might just be two or $3,000 a year. That's not enough to support a human underwriter spending hours upon hours working on a file. So what we're seeing and the ways we're hoping to make uh, the, the commercial insurance even cheaper is by reducing the effort that has to be spent to do some of the key underwriting tasks um, as it relates to commercial insurance. So a big one is classifying a business. There's been research that showed that you know, 40, 50 percent of policies are actually improperly classified um, as is, as having a you know, human underwriter look at them. Um, so what we can do is actually run this through our API, our technology, and more accurately classify businesses, but at the same time, then allow the commercial carrier to not have to have um, as much time and energy spent on that work. Um, so that's one of the ways we're helping to make the small business segment more profitable for commercial insurers. Awesome. Rob? Well, I have a question on uh, what your background as an actuary and you know we talked about artificial intelligence machine learning you know some of the actuaries i've talked to i've talked to um, several different uh cas events casually actuarial society and, and others i actually um which is great that they keep inviting me by the way and i think they keep inviting <laughs> me because they keep challenging them but but like actuaries are so used to kind of the process right taking the exams the certification reading all the papers and i feel like they're actually not prepared to for this world of artificial intelligence that is here now right this isn't a 10 years from now like this is real now and i don't know just kind of curious your thoughts about actuaries this whole you know they used to have all this you know tribal knowledge that was really important but you know any such as James and myself could, you know, run, uh, you know, TensorFlow now. So maybe you could just talk about the impact that you see for AI in general on um, actuaries and, and how would you mentor a, a young actuary today or encourage them to, you know, stay relevant in this uh, ever-changing world? Well, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the implications that now you don't have to have a, you know, 100-year-old process to, to price a product. Um, in fact, like those models are outdated, not useful, not helpful. Um, we've seen the world you know, change really dynamically in the last two months. Um, so you can almost take all those assumptions and, and throw them out the window. And being good at machine learning, um, taking, you know, like you mentioned TensorFlow as an example, um, but picking some of these off the, the shelf tools and being able to create models is far more important than having a process that's, that's, that's rooted in you know, a true science like actuarial sciences. So the, the advice I would have is to be really good at using those tools and understanding the methodology and knowing how you can take shortcuts. We've had conversations with a couple of venture techs who are, you know, working on creating their pricing model right now, and they don't have the data that the Hartford may have, um, but they have access to you know, public data on companies, they have access to, to lost data. There's other things you can get to if you're scrappy, where you can create a model that's, that's good enough and allows you to get to market much faster than someone who's going to try and get the, the perfect model. That sounds great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great advice, Lance. And I got a quick follow-up. So uh, I'm sure you're aware the University of Alabama is home to the Insurance Hall of Fame. So uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll no doubt be in trying there one day. Um, kind of, you know, one of the smartest guys I know in the industry. Where do you see kind of the future of the industry, not necessarily just short term during the pandemic, but, you know, long term? And do you think this is going to accelerate some trends or do you think some will slow down or just how do you kind of see the next five to 10 years playing out? Well, speaking of the Insurance Hall of Fame, it's a funny story. I took a lot of classes in the room where the entrance hall of fame exists and you have all these pictures on the wall. Um, and it's almost like the, the Scooby-Doo cartoons where the pictures have eyes and they're looking at you. So it's really unnerving to sit there and try and take in what the professor's saying when you look over and you see, um, this, you know, this picture of this older person that's looking at you. Um, so I, I would be honored to one day have my picture on the wall, Rob. Not sure if that'll happen, but continue to work hard to, to get it there. Uh, in terms of change, I, I mean, I think it's definitely going to accelerate the pace of change. Like we, we've certainly, you know, heard the quote, you know, decade, there's decades when nothing happens. There's weeks when decades happen. You know, I think this has been, these last weeks have been decades happening, um, the other thing I, I've joked about before is that I want to be in the insurance industry when the world ends because it's going to happen 10 years later in the insurance industry. Uh, we're behind. So I think you know the pace of change will accelerate, but maybe it's not quite as fast 
for insurance. Some things that I see happening, probably been a lot of people that have talked about digital. I think this is going to be a big push for digital solutions. If, you, if you're if you a carrier and you haven't been focused on digital, um, you're already behind because now there's going to be more demand on doing things digitally. You don't want to interact as much face-to-face, you know, paper paper, if, if stock and paper, that should be down. Stock and digital things is up. The other thing that, that I'm really interested in and could be completely wrong on this take, but we haven't talked a lot about federalism. It's interesting that we're I'm on the podcast with two guys from, from Texas. Uh, but I wonder, there's been such a, such a, a lot of the mess related to the crisis is because of there not being coordination between the states and the federal government. You've got, you know, these stories of governors outbidding each other for PPE. You know, there's all kinds of things. And that also has insurance industry can resemble that, too. And the fact that, <laughs> that we have 51 different you know, commissioners, there's there's lots of, you know, all the different jurisdictions that are at play. And so one of my predictions would be that there, there could be more federal coordination going forward. And, and maybe this is a push towards more of a, a unified standard um, in, in the U.S. on the insurance front. That's like a third rail with many in the insurance business, right? Like you mm-hmm. you have uh, tri- literally a multi-trillion dollar industry predicated and, and billions and billions of dollars in the U.S. predicated on, uh, on 51 unique sets of rules. Uh, it's created and, you know, there's many, many, many companies that exist and we can name a few of them we're not going to because of the disparate regulatory environment, the patchwork code of regulations. That being said, we'll, we'll, maybe we won't touch on all of the issues we could talk about when we talk about coronavirus, because certainly what works for Michigan uh, does not work uh, necessarily for Texas. And the same with what works in a super urban dense area like New York City apply to um, Marfa, Texas, right? And so the I, I uh, for one, am a pretty large states' rights advocate in general, but I have seen the incredible amount of inefficiency that it's brought to the insurance market. Uh, it is just really complicated. I, I'll tell you what, Lance, I would love to see the health insurance market be federal. Right. Uh, the, I mean, just the fact that you got to get different insurance when you change when you move states, which just makes no sense. And and the rules are so different. And, and of course, it limits competition too, which is the really big problem is I'd like to see all those insurance companies competing with each other nationally um, to try and drive premium down. But I think that's probably a bit of a pipe dream. I'm not sure that uh, it'll, it'll happen simply because there's too many billions of dollars and there's too many insurance commissioners whose entire careers and staffs are, are dedicated towards uh, the individual regulatory environments of the states. You know, and, and when it comes to coronavirus, I was, I was thankful that Texas that has 28 million people and is larger than most European countries and has a larger GDP than almost any of them um, was able to make its own decisions. You know, I, I didn't want to have to consider all the considerations in other, in other areas. So I think there's, it's, it's always a two edged sword, right? It's always a two edged sword. Uh, but certainly from a technology perspective, uh, the patchwork creates a ton of opportunity for technology companies. <laughs> so there is there is opportunity in all that mess, right? Yeah, there certainly is. If you look at what's happening with insurtechs in Europe and the UK, you know, where there is one system, um, there are some things that are more straightforward. Uh, you know, I look at one of the things we deal a lot with is stitching together open data, data from different municipalities, taking the you know, Harris County in Texas appraisal data and putting that with the business license data in Texas. You know, that takes a lot of effort, but it allows us to create value. I've seen the same kind of open data in Europe and the UK that's amazing and really easy to use. And you don't need someone like a Juniper Labs to help put it together for you. Um, so you're right. The mess does create opportunities for tech companies here. Whereas in other places that are under one system, there's efficiencies that we don't have here. But I, I'm with you. I, I like the ability for states to make their own decision, but would love to see us be able to capture some more of the efficiencies that are gained when when there is one person making decisions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always it's always a two edged sword. I, I, yeah. I have a who is it that said that they have a, a significant fear of a efficient bureaucracy because an efficient bureaucracy is absolutely terrifying. 
And, uh, and I, and I think I, I agree after I served six years in our city council here and I've, I've been involved in government for a while and, uh, an efficient bureaucracy should scare the hell out of everybody <laughs> because, right. because, because they can be brutally efficient. There's, there's a, there's a two edged sword to everything in life. Rob, what you got? One of the things that, um, we've done in the last few podcasts is, uh, kind of talk about some of the, the latest news items and headlines. So James, you probably already had a couple queued up, but one I wanted to throw out to you guys is, uh, the AIG CEO this week, Brian Dupro, mentioned that he thinks COVID-19 is going to be the worst global catastrophe ever, um, which raised a lot of a lot of eyebrows. Um, in the same earnings call, they actually killed their insure tech unit called Blackboard. Yeah. Um, so that also caused a lot of chatter. So just curious if you guys saw that, any reaction? Do you think it's, I mean, it, people were starting to say, well, let's see, Hurricane Katrina was this amount and whatnot. So people started counting on their fingers and toes when they said uh, worst catastrophe ever. So just curious, any thoughts that uh, either of you had, if you saw that? And Yeah, thank you for bringing the news up. And I appreciate that. We, we, we're going to be doing that every every show. This was an interesting one because first off, it depends on the topic Lance and I were just talking about. Uh, the political situation at states, because we're talking, there are state legislatures that are discussing basically overriding insurance contracts and requiring coverage on general liability policies for this, even though they either explicitly excluded pandemics or did not include it uh, by name. And so I think it depends. I think it's a big, giant question mark. It depends on what the insurance company's exposure is to this, right? If we're not really talking about the phrase catastrophe in terms of exposure to insurance carriers, we're just talking about total losses on a catastrophic event, then I think it's a different conversation. It doesn't depend on, you know, the regulatory environment. It just depends on uh, on how much money people lose, right? I mean, there's going to be you know significant financial loss, companies unable to recover, et cetera, um, out of this. I think it's a bit too early to be making that definitive of a statement because it's challenging. You look at a lot of different models like Sweden is, is you know, kind of going their own way. Um, they've experienced far less economic ruin. Uh, they've, they've experienced more deaths, but we, you know, their argument is we're just getting it over with faster. And so you look at what Sweden's doing, uh, you know, it's a very interesting experiment. So I think, I think we're probably a few months away from making that determination. I feel like it's a bit premature to say it's the worst catastrophe ever. I mean, do we really have the cat numbers on the 1916 to 1919 influenza epidemic, which was just 100 years ago that my great-grandfather died in? Do we have the data on that, really? Do we have the loss numbers? Because we didn't really collect cat loss numbers 100 years ago like we do now, right? So maybe in the, in, in the recent hist- uh, uh, history, because hurricanes are so localized compared to a global pandemic, right? Like there's no other thing I can think of in my 40 years of walking this earth that impacted every business on the planet simultaneously. It feels like a, a managing expectations type of statement, right? At this point, let me just go ahead and say, this is going to be the worst catastrophe ever. Let's get that priced in. And then when it's better, then you know the AIG stock price is, is higher. So it feels to me more like I'm going to set expectations low and hopefully we do better than what I'm helping everyone to think this is going to look like. So I, I'm, with, I'm with you, James. It seems early in terms of making making that statement. And I feel like as a CEO on earnings call, it's just, just managing expectations. Lance, I, I came up with a phrase uh, a couple of weeks ago on my other podcast, Corona goading. It's when you have existing business problems and you blame coronavirus for them. Now, in this case, I it's like, you know, scapegoating corona, corona goading. So I think it's going to catch on. Hashtag corona goading. <laughs> um, I'm seeing a lot of startups do this. Like they had, <laughs> they had failing business models already. They were losing money like crazy. They were trying to raise more rounds. Of course, term sheets have all been torn up in the last two months, right? Yep. And so if you're not a profitable company, you have a bunch of debt, or you had a big cash burn situation, having a revenue decline, is pretty devastating in particular if you can't get your next round of funding. Because what I've been hearing is the major PE and GE groups and VC groups have been still be willing to fund, but at a vastly they're downrounding all of their investments right now um, to, you know, they're taking advantage of the situation. They're sitting a lot of capital. They go out and they can get a lot more of the equity for less money. And so uh, I think there's a good deal of Corona goading. I think if you're a public CEO and you might have been, um, you know, on the verge of hitting some negative numbers. You could uh, just say, "Hey, coronavirus is the worst thing that's ever happened." I don't know. 
uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I agree with you. There's a lot of expectation setting that happens on those investment calls, though. Rob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I figured the two CEOs would, uh, would catch on to that <laughs> expectation setting really quickly. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with both of you. You know, I think it's a little early to make that call. I, I, you make a great point, James. I think what's unprecedented here is the global nature of it. You know, I've talked to friends all over the world, right, in, in Germany and in India and in Australia, um, you know, Thailand, elsewhere, and everyone was locked down. Everyone was stuck at home. And obviously, companies are now, re- or, I'm sorry, countries are are reopening at, at, at different paces. There was a time when, yeah, it didn't matter where you were, you know, Brazil, didn't matter where you were in the, the world, right? You were kind of experiencing the same thing. So that's unprecedented. Um, and so it, it may very well prove to be the the biggest uh, kind of global insurance uh, catastrophe ever. But I think it's a little bit TBD. And um, yeah, so that, that that makes sense in terms of, uh, I guess they, they call it the Overton window, right? You kind of shift the window of, you know, where you want to people to, to focus on stuff. So anyway, that was something that I know in the news kind of uh, caused some uh, chatter this week among a social network online. Awesome. I, I had an article, Rob, uh, that was from a few weeks ago from Forbes, and you probably read it. Um, it was just outlining, it was by Lev Berlinski, uh, Five Technology Trends in the Insurance Industry. And I just thought it was a good article that really covered what I think is... Um, you know, certainly in the rise of InsurTech, talking about telematics. I mean, re- really the topics you and I uh, talk about all the time, telematics, the rise of social media, robotic process automation, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. And it's it's interesting of these, the one I feel like is really taking a backseat in conversations is blockchain right now. I feel like we talked a lot, of, a lot more about it a year ago. And right now, with everything being as crazy as it is, we're like, okay, forget about blockchain. Blockchain is actually playing a huge role in some of the developing markets right now, and and in insurance and in risk mitigation. Uh, The blockchain market went crazy in Argentina. Uh, They're on the verge of yet another collapse because you know because of Latin America. I mean, I, I I grew up going to Latin America. I've been operating Argentina for 19 years. The, you know, most of Latin, Latin America operates in perpetual cycles of boom and bust and boom and bust. Uh, it, it was that way when I lived in Mexico in the 90s. I've been operating Argentina for the last 19 years. But the blockchain, the Bitcoin market to be particular, which sits on blockchain technology, um, went bananas in the last few weeks in, uh, in South America because of COVID. And, you know, the, the currency is collapsing again. The peso is. And I think you're going to see this happen a lot. And they're going to be looking for ways in insurance. And this is where smart contracts and blockchain come in. When you have chaos, you need a simple way to track provenance and a simple way to track who owes what money. And there's, there's some really, really, really strong cases being made right now for the use of blockchain and for the use of cryptocurrency to top it off. And of course, we've all known, those of us that are, you know, in, in sure tech geeks have known for a while that smart contracts and blockchain and cryptocurrencies could play a colossal massive role in insurance. I mean, the entire insurance product line could be delivered inside of a blockchain. And that's something that I saw from this Forbes article that I thought was kind of the sleeper right now, because we're, talk- we're still talking a lot about machine learning, but uh, blockchain's kind of been taking a back seat. And I think there's a, there's a big role it's playing right now with COVID. In particular, as you see currencies collapse and entire economies collapse, um, blockchain takes on an even more important role. Rob, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, the fact that you know so much of your um, economic well-being right now is going to depend on your political leaders, right? And what decisions they make and whether those are wise decisions or not. And, and again, not being this in a partisan way at all, it's difficult, right? It's a moving target. Data and, and uh, numbers are very conflicting, right? You've got to make some, some hard choices. Uh, but however that plays out, right, the fact that you've entrusted somebody with your livelihood in many cases, right, I, I think people are going to look to find alternative ways to kind of um, be able to control their own destiny a bit more, control their own future. And so, yeah, exactly right. Not worrying about, you know, what the Federal Reserve does, right, or, or what Congress does or whatever. Um, and again, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. Um, and that's what crypto and, and blockchain, right? It's like, hey, we talked about kind of the rules. There's a system. Here's how it works. And um, I think people can, uh, so yeah, I've been kind of monitoring the price of, of Bitcoin throughout the past uh, couple of months on this. So Lance, what are your thoughts? I'm very curious. Yeah, two, two things that I think are, have been interesting. Zoom bought Keybase 
yesterday that acquisition was announced. Keybase is they had is to, lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> they had to. Yeah, I'm sure the Keybase founders did really well on that. So Keybase, they have a Slack-like technology that that runs on the blockchain. They have a handful of other solutions. I'm not an expert on the company, but I think Zoom bought this company as a way to shore up its security. So I think to your your point, James, the you know, blockchain as a, as a technology, you know, we're going to see more and more of that. Hasn't been talked about as much, but you know, just made news yesterday. The other thing too that that is interesting is parametric insurance and parametric products and a lot in the smart contracts you mentioned that you know it could be powered by blockchain but to bring back and circle back to the actuarial perspective on this it's really hard to price some of these products where the exposure is just completely unknown and you have to use kind of traditional pricing techniques but if you can bring these products more to a parametric approach if this thing happens then we will pay this amount and we can measure it really easily the pricing is more straightforward than than putting this on a traditional insurance product. Yeah, well, that's that would define explicitly covering everything in a conditional statement, right? Mm-hmm. I had a friend who built a system uh, eight years ago, nine years ago, super cool. It was a giant conditional engine that you could place. It wasn't betting, although it would have made a brilliant betting platform. He, he pulled in data feeds on every kind of event you can think of. And I mean Every kind of event. So he pulled in sport data feeds, all sport data feeds. Then he pulled in details on the games. And then you would put a conditional statement. If Tom Brady makes five completions in the first half, I'm going to donate. So it wasn't betting because, you know, online gambling is not legal everywhere. <clears throat> I'm going to donate 50 bucks to this charity. So it was all, it was a giving and charitable platform. I thought it was brilliant because he, he basically created an if-then statement around every event that he could get his hands on an RSS, RSS feed for. Yeah. So any weather event, any sports event, any government, I mean, it, it, every time us, every time SpaceX launches a rocket, I'm giving a hundred dollars to the national science foundation. You can, you could literally condition everything that happened that you could get a data feed for, and then trigger a financial event from it. Unfortunately, the startup didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but the core technology dovetails into exactly what you were just talking about. Right. That would be a that would be a fundamental a fundamentally different insurance contract, right? It would be the contract would be a, a, a series of conditional statements and what they pay out if they are triggered, right? Exactly. Mm. Yeah, a lot more straightforward, you know, there's not this is my business interruption, you know, insurance or coverage going to be paid is it is coronavirus co- you know causing physical damage cuz BI is a part of the, you know, the property, you know, insurance. So th- those questions that get debated and talked about today would just be a very clean cut. And, and maybe that's part of the future of insurance too, is, is making this, the payout more clear, the conditions for the claim more clear um, versus what's there now where it's up for debate. And, you know, you have to, you just told, we'll just file a claim and let's see what happens. Yeah. Rob, any uh, closing thoughts on that? Just the transparency, right? I think that's the theme that keeps coming through. So you know what you you have. And again, like I said, kind of taking a little bit more control over your own destiny rather than what are the courts going to do, right? What's the state legislature, the governor going to declare or whatnot? There's so many decisions that I think are outside people's control. And it actually ties a little bit back into the decentralized versus centralized, right? That we're kind of debating more. So yeah, you know what you have and not. Now people may not like the price, right? When they say, yeah, you know, add the pandemic coverage to the business interruption. But it would be great if you had the transparency in the pricing too. Say, hey, you want this? It's going to cost you. Um, obviously, people have talked about uh, Wimbledon, right? Getting the pandemic payout where they were paying $2 million a year for pandemic insurance over 34 years. And then boom, this year, right, coverage triggers to get $140 million. So it clearly can be done. So I think the, the big one with the parametric is going to be, do people really understand? such a fundamental transformation. You know, I think already people used to go into insurance agents and brokers, right, for their advice. And so to the extent that now you're flipping over to kind of parametric, it's just such a different paradigm. But I think after this, um, and people said, I've been paying all these years and I didn't really understand what I had. I thought I was covered and I'm not, as it turns out, um, or I'm covered only because, right, some contract got blown up retrospectively, whatever, just this unknown um, and this unsure, you know, and having to wait to see how the courts decide. Uh, People are going to want a lot more transparency going forward. Awesome. Well, look, uh, we do need to wrap up. Lance, final question. This is our closing question. 
Let's look forward in the future. What's the one thing relating to your business that you're really excited about that's developing or coming in the future? I hit on this a little earlier, but it's the move to digital. That before there was a you know face to face, there was uh, paper involved. There's all these you know I'd call old school you know 1.0 type technologies, and now there's been a huge impetus to move away from that um, and to adopt digital solutions. Whereas before the carrier might have said, "Hey, we're good. Like business is okay. Business is fine. We're growing at five ten percent a year. Everything's everything's okay. We're not as worried about the intro tech startups that are coming into our, our world." And now it's all <laughs> all out the window. Um, and so now there's there's going to be much bigger big, bigger push to digital. And so for our business, we're helping enable that that move. And so for us, you know, this has accelerated the adoption, accelerated change. And so that's that's got me excited. And then also just as a consumer too, you know, having an easier way to purchase insurance, that's exciting uh, as well. Awesome. Rob, closing thoughts? Yeah, Lance, it's uh, so great to see you. Thrilled uh, to have you on the podcast. Glad to know you guys are are going strong at Juniper. And um, yeah, really appreciate you having it on and, and your thoughts. Again, one of the smartest guys I know in this space. So it's always good to, to be able to catch up and uh, get your thoughts. James, good to see you. Enjoy uh, freezing cold Michigan. <laughs> we'll catch you next episode. Yeah, I, I will. Absolutely. Um, Lance, where can people find out more information on your company? Go to juniperlabs.com. And then you can also follow me and, uh, and catch me on LinkedIn. And then I'm on Twitter at Lance Pool. Okay, awesome. Great. Well, of course, we'll post all that in the show notes. Appreciate you being on. Super geeky conversation. Uh, go SEC. Uh, I'll just say That's that. Right. We, can, we can bond around that. Our chancellor, I don't know what uh, Bama said, but our university chancellor said we will have football in the fall. I thought that was a, a pretty bold and a definitive statement. He said we will have football in the fall. We will have class in the fall. So uh, needless to say, Aggies were pretty excited about that. I just don't know if there'll be any people allowed in the stands. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it should be an, uh, an interesting uh, season of SEC football. And uh, and maybe Alabama will be back in the mix again this year, right? Hopefully so. Yeah. I, mean, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised at all with Nick Saban at the helm of that organization. Thanks, everybody out there for joining us. Again, uh, this has been another episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast. Um, we had a really great conversation Um, Remember, this is all about technology. It's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham, and my co-host, Rob Galbraith. A big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. Look forward to talking with you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out.